Well, today I told you all the last time I preached on this topic that I would try to finish up part two. Today, Hebrews chapter 12, and I hope that you've had some time to think on the message last week, and in that message we revisited the last 25 sermons that uh, I've tried to preach, which sounds like a whole lot, and maybe it is, but... uh, There were two themes that um, came out to me, and some of you might have noticed some others, but I want to revisit those, because this is the background of what I feel we need to consider for the message today. And this message is titled, Run Your Race, the second part of it, Run Your Race. All those uh, messages were really centered around two points. So the first point is the indispensable, irreplaceable need to know God and experience His presence. There is no substitute. It overwhelms me thinking about it. There's no substitute for knowing God. And so few professing religious people actually know God. Now, I'm not judging them and saying that they're not going to go to heaven. I don't know who has experienced God's salvation and will go to heaven someday, but I know a whole lot of religious people have no idea who God really is. There's no substitute for His presence and for a knowledge of Him. And the second thing that was interwoven in so many of those messages, this may be something I need more personally than than some of you, but I think we all need it. And that is... The need to know yourself. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which thus so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before Him. We preached about that not long ago as well. But Jesus was, this is, I want you to get this. He was in our skin. He knew what it was like to be a human. He experienced it from being a helpless little baby all the way up to being a persecuted, grown man. Persecuted and killed. He knows what it's like to be one of us. And he made it through his life by looking at the joy that was set before him. As we try to preach today about you running your race, the only way we're going to make it as God wants us to is to consider the joy set before us. And this writer says, seeing we have such a cloud of witnesses, he says we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Now he's referring specifically to those that have gone on before. The fathers of faith, as, as we call them in religious circles. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and Samson. All of these people. People use that phrase, the cloud of witnesses, uh, out of context to talk about the people around us in our lives presently. 
That's not what the Hebrew writer is talking about. It's true. We also have a surrounding cloud of witnesses with God's people if we're surrounded by God's people. But the point is, he is referring the people back to the faithfulness of God. An established, irrevocable pattern of faithfulness that was confirmed in God's promise all the way back to Abraham. And really all the way back to Adam, if you think about it. But the promise itself all the way back to Abraham. Now, the reason I tried to revisit all those messages last time is because those messages are very like this cloud of witnesses that the Hebrew writer was talking about in the 11th chapter and telling the people, in light of all that God has shown us, now you run your race. And that's, that's what's in my heart. In light of everything God has preached to us through the various preachers that we've had in this congregation and that we've heard, what are we going to do? What is the point of it all? What is it for? Why does God teach us things? Why does He encourage us? Why does He strengthen us? It's so we can run the race He's given us to run. This translation says, run your race with patience. Another way it could be translated is, run your race with endurance. This is an endurance race. And that is so hard for my personality. I watched my neighbor, he got a dump truck load of three-inch gravel. They bought it, brought it, backed it down, dumped it at the end of his barn. And uh, I was working from my office, looking out the window, watching him shovel gravel by hand into a wheelbarrow. <laughs> All day. So I went over there on my lunch break and helped him for 22 minutes. And uh, I, I worked fast. It was a sprint. I came back in a sweat as cold as it was outside. We got about five or six wheelbarrow loads done. And that stuff's almost impossible to shovel with a, with a shovel. And I came back and watched him work at such a different pace than we worked while I was over there for 22 minutes. He took a break when he needed to. He shoveled a little. He leaned up against the shovel. That's the endurance race. It took him two days to move a dump, lo trode, dump, dump truck load of gravel by hand in a wheelbarrow and a shovel. And I, I helped him knock out about five or six loads. That's life. Do you see that analogy? And some of us have personalities like mine that want to run over somewhere... Shovel nonstop for 20 minutes till we're out of breath and sweating and then run back and do what else we were doing. This race God has given us is going to last the rest of your life. The Lord is not interested in frenetic energy. That is the scattered kind of all over the place. You know what He's interested in? Stable dependence upon Him. And that is why the Hebrew writer is saying, in light of all this cloud of witnesses, in light of these faithful people who all believed the promises of God and died without ever seeing what He promised, they knew God was faithful. They, met, they ran their race. They finished the course. They looked unto Jesus who had never been born and wasn't a man because He never came as a man. And they were faithful. 
That's our example. Our example is looking back on people who were faithful through eyes of faith who never actually tasted, touched, and held the promised Messiah like Thomas and the other apostles did. And yet, they knew the Lord was faithful. That is the legacy God has given us as His people. So, that's what we want to talk about today. I want to tell you one more story from the Bible before we get into that. And this is Jacob, who has spent all those years with his uncle Laban. Worked 14 years to get the woman that he loved. How, how many of you men would, uh, would wait 14 years? Well, he had to wait seven. And then he had her, but he had to work seven more. How many of you would wait seven years for something you wanted? And then on top of that, to be a slave, basically? Wow. So he lived there all this time. He's coming back. He left having betrayed his brother, having uh, been the deceiver and the supplanter. And we see his life that he's um, kind of mischievous. He's kind of a, a, a deceptive person. And he's on the way back, and his servant comes and says to him, your brother is on his way, and he has 400 men with him. Here comes Esau with a small army, and Jacob is terrified. And he splits up his people into different camps. Probably his favorite wife was in the back, and the other one was in the front, so that they could get the ones he didn't care about as much first, most likely. And not only that, he sends ahead hundreds and hundreds of different livestock in layers to get to Esau first. And on the way there, Jacob is still depending on his own flesh, his own intellect. He's a schemer. He thinks through stuff. He comes up with the best plan. He's a planner. That's part of how God blessed him with his livestock is Jacob researched and knew what would help them breed better and he did it. And now he's trying to preserve his own life through his own plans and his own actions. And then it's night and he comes to a place and there's a messenger of God there. And they begin wrestling. And they wrestle so long that it's all night. The day is about to break, and this angel of the Lord says to Jacob, let me go, it's almost daybreak. And he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And this messenger of God says to him, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. See, the name Jacob means supplanter. That was his identity. He had accomplished what he had accomplished in his life by his own methods and means. Sure, God blessed him. But his whole life, he had depended on himself to bring about what he needed. He depended on his flesh. And this angel says to him, after he tells him his name is Jacob, he says, now your name is going to be Israel. And that word means God has prevailed. Now, I want you to think about the paradox because this ties into the message and it ties into the rest of our lives. 
Jacob has been depending on his own strength, his own intellect, his own mind, his own plans for his whole life. In fact, before he even realized that he came out of the womb grabbing onto his brother's ankle, that was in him. Some of us, some of you have such a self-reliance, especially if you're American, it's called American exceptionalism. You're bred to believe that you're better than everybody else. And we really believe it. He comes out of the womb grabbing onto his brother's ankle. That's him. And when he encounters this message of God, who he says, I have seen God face to face and, and have survived, he said he wrestled with the Lord. That's how real it was. He sees this messenger, and no longer is he depending on his own flesh, his own self-reliance. All he cares about is saying, you bless me. Give me your presence. This person is a representative of God, and Jacob is saying, I won't let go. He's so tenacious. He's so serious. He lets go of everything else. He stays awake all night, gripping onto him, holding onto him, so much so that this angel of the Lord dislocates his hip just so he can have a break. You want to know the difference in the past generations who've accomplished what it seems like is great things for God and the people now, we're all like, why is everybody asleep? How come nothing's happening? That's the difference. People are not wrestling with God. He wants us to come boldly unto His throne of grace to obtain mercy and favor to help in time of need. We're taught to do that. And through Jesus Christ, we have the means to do that. Jacob, Jesus hadn't even ever come, and Jacob still wrestled with the angel of the Lord like that. And in that surrender, that's what it was. It was a tenacious, striving surrender. That's the same kind of surrender it takes for salvation. Salvation doesn't come just when you become apathetic and say, oh, I can't do nothing. It comes when you are so intentionally and actively seeking after the Lord and at the same time letting go of all your own self-reliance. That's why Jesus said, earnestly strive to enter in. Because narrow is the way and the gate that leads to eternal life and there are few that find it. And our lives of service to the Lord are lives of striving as well. And this modern religion we're immersed in has lost that and it's tricked us all. God doesn't expect us to be comfortable all the time. He doesn't expect it to be easy all the time. He expects us to strive. That's what Jacob does at the same time as giving up on his own plans and desires. And God changes his very identity. He changes his name from supplanter to God has prevailed. Now, interestingly, Jacob seemed like he prevailed. And that's how our lives are when we do all we can do and we rely on everything, every blessing, every talent God has given us. And at the same time, we're relying on him and we prevail. It's really him prevailing. It's his glory. See, we do all we can do. This is what Jesus taught in the parable. After you've done all you can do, say, we are only unprofitable servants. We have only done that which was our duty to do. That's our attitude. That, that, I'm telling you all how to have a happy life. Strive your whole life. Be diligent. Work. And at the same time, rely wholly and completely on God. That's how you run your race. 
Listen, we've all been created by God with a purpose, an eternal and definite purpose to run this race He set before us to run our own race. And what's your race? I told you one of the themes that keeps working into these messages is know yourself. Do you know yourself? Do you know what you want? Do you know what you like? Many Christians are afraid to know what they want, to know what they like, and they hide behind a statement like this. Well, I just want what the Lord wants. That's a cop-out. Because when you mean that from the sincere desire of your heart, listen, Scripture says this, Jesus gives us the desires of our hearts. God wants you to have desires of your own heart that come from a love for Him. He doesn't want you to cop out behind, well, just whatever the Lord wants. Because you know what will happen? You won't actually want anything. Now, if that's the truth, that's good. You should want whatever the Lord wants, but God wants you to desire things. I don't mean material things. I mean blessings. You have not because you ask not. You ask and desire to have, still and kill and all this stuff like James says so that you can consume it in your lust. God doesn't want us to be like that. He says, Jesus teaches, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is single, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body is full of darkness. God teaches us all through Scripture that we should have a diligent focus on something. And when that focus is Him, we see more and more the face of Jesus. More and more His plan unfold for our life. And more and more His love for us. So what is your race? Who are you? I don't have an answer for that. That's an answer you have to get from God in your own private, quiet time with Him. What did He make you for? may not be some big thing. The best way you can know the race that God has set out before you is to know yourself. And yourself, this is for all of us, we are all comprised of two distinct identity aspects. And one is spiritual and one is fleshly. Paul clearly delineates that when he says, I'm sold under sin. (laughs) That which I would do, I do not. And that which I hate, that's what I do. There's a law warring in my members that when I would do good, evil is present with me. There's a law of the flesh. He says the flesh cannot worship God. And yet he also says, I bring my body under subjection. We serve God spiritually, but we use this tabernacle, this vessel, this flesh He has put us in to do it. Try to serve God without your body. I want to leave my body behind and go serve Him. No, even when you pray, you use your body. You use your voice, you use your mind. You have both spiritual desires and needs and fleshly desires and needs. And the second part of knowing this race that God has set for you is you need to know God. I'm not just talking about being saved. I mean knowing God. Knowing what He's like. I I told you all a couple weeks ago, do you have something you really like about yourself? And if you can't say yes, ask God what He likes about you. And if you haven't done that yet, I still want you to do that. Find out from God what He thinks of you, and you will be amazed. 
I've prayed that a few times. I mean, with just complete emptied out sincerity. Lord, what, what do you think of me? And it's overwhelming how much love, how much compassion, how much tender affection. He loves every one of you more than you can even comprehend. Don't just listen to me. Get him to show you. Ask him. All this criticalness that we feel, people feel like God is severe and, and, and all of this, that's in your head. Now, he's severe against those who don't worship him. He's merciful, he's merciful, he's merciful, and then it's too late. But for those, let me tell you one of my favorite verses. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you're saved, the blood of Jesus has been symbolically applied just like in that Passover night to the door, and God can't look on you with criticism, hatred, or anything but love. It's not possible because His justice has already been satisfied in Jesus if you're saved. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He is spirit. He embodies spirit. He's the definition of spirit. The other thing that stands out to me is God operates in ways that most people would be surprised by. Elijah in the cave up on the mountain is a good example of that. All of the loud demonstrations, and he knows that's not God. Because when the still small voice comes, he wraps his head up to protect himself from the presence of God and walks out and stands in his presence. The still small voice. The psalmist says that God comes in the secret and in the quiet place. And part of knowing God, we need to think about this. In past generations, particularly in this country, People's way of life had plenty of built-in listening times. It had built-in silence. Agricultural people, they had seasons built in where sometimes they just sat around on their porch. They just waited for it to rain for a few days. We can't do anything unless it rains. Or if it was too cold. The enemy has intentionally crafted a culture in this country and in some of the rest of the world where we think we are so busy all the time that we have no time for anything, surely not any time to know ourselves. The greatest challenge facing God's people going into the future in this age in which we live is to intentionally step back from what we feel like is a life of insurmountable busyness. Is to intentionally step back and listen. Listen to the silence. Listen to the silence inside yourself. Listen to the still small. You won't hear God's still small voice underneath noise, busyness, chaos, worry, confusion, all of that stuff. Now we, it was said in Sunday school, we actually believe, me included sometimes, that that we are spending our whole lives trying to survive. And yet if you look at statistics, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, people have worked... Uh, it's like seven hours less per week than they worked 50 years ago. We actually have more time if we want it. If we want it. 
This race we have set before us, there's two kinds of races, and one is spiritual and one is fleshly. And we run both at the same time. And a spiritual race that God is having us run, Jesus Christ is the prize. Like Paul said, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in Jesus Christ. Not as though I'd already attained. He recognized that everything he experienced in his life was a shadow of the complete revelation of the presence of Jesus that he would see after death. If you put your life and the race you're running in context of that, the little daily things matter so much less. Lord, why don't I see this result? Why didn't this corn have you know, eight ears on the stalk instead of two? <laughs> All these things in our lives, we worry about the harvest, but the true harvest for the people of God is going to come after death when we see the face of Jesus. Everything in this life will pale in comparison. And this race we run also is a fleshly race. And really, I guess when you're talking about the flesh, the way you obtain or win is what we would call success. Those two, spiritual and flesh, can be opposing. And we have been taught by religion that they are always opposing. But they're not always opposing. The people in the 11th chapter of Hebrews were people who were diligent, faithful, and did a whole lifetimes full of striving toward the promise and the presence of God. If we uh, make, this, this applies to our culture, but I think here in this room, not to so many, but if you make material success your goal, you're going to be disappointed. We know that because success is like an elusive phantom that it can't fully satisfy. And there's always the next thing. I remember one of the richest men in the world was interviewed and they said, you already have so many billions of dollars. How much more do you need? And his answer was more. (laughs) More. And the point is more is never enough. That is a truth. In physical things, it's also a truth in spiritual things. If you hunger after the presence of God, the more you know Him, the more you desire Him, the more you'll want Him. And it's never enough. You always need more of Him. Because we were made, as I preached a while back, for another country, for another world, for another place where God's presence will be permanent all around us and unfiltered by any fleshly distractions or sin. We have, I've got to get this point across, ingrained in the, the very psyche of modern religious people, uh, this idea that I can either be spiritual or I can be successful, but I can't be both. You don't find that idea in Scripture. That's something that current modern religious people invented as a form of legalism, just like the Jews did for circumcision. Now, they didn't invent it. God applied it, but they kept doing it. They, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need circumcision. No, Jesus fulfilled the law. And what I'm telling you is Jesus fulfills, but you're also supposed to be diligent in your life. They go hand in hand. Let's prove it with Scripture, not just what I think. Abraham, he had so many servants, it was like he was going around with his own army. He was a friend of God and the first faithful man who 
was promised these promises of God. Isaac, same thing. Jacob, you read in the 32nd chapter of Genesis where I quoted from today, he was sending his brother like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of livestock. Wealthy. Job. Job was the most righteous man in the world, per God. And he was the richest man in the region. How about Adam? Adam had the whole creation at his disposal. In effect, he owned the world. God created him in such a state of abundance. Now, some of us have been so put off by false prosperity teaching that the hairs are starting to stand up and we're backing up. Listen, God is the one who created abundance and these guys are just ripped it off. He, his plan for his people, he put Adam and Eve in a place of such abundance that the whole garden, which was the world, was at their disposal. They could do whatever they wanted with it except that one rule that they broke. That's God's plan for his people. And Jesus confirmed it when he said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. His goal, God's purpose for us is to experience abundance in his presence and abundance in our lives. He gauges, the Lord gauges, and maybe this part is better for young people who are on the beginning of their race. But God gauges what kind of steward we'll be over greater spiritual blessings against what kind of steward we are over the small material things in our lives. We look at those parables Jesus told and see that. And the man who represents the Lord in the parable says, you've been faithful over small things. Now you'll be faithful over many things. Go and enjoy the blessings of your Lord. And the one who wasn't faithful over small things, he said, depart into everlasting torment. That applies, and especially the younger people who are trying to figure out what you want to do with your life, what kind of foundation, all of that things. Uh, If we squander the blessings God has given us and we're not good stewards of the small things He has put us over, we will have lives of misery. It's true. You know, some of you might, you believe accurately, say, well, I don't have anything to be a steward over. I don't own anything. I'll give just an example. Everybody here who's of driving age has a vehicle to drive. Right? And this is this is gonna condemn me as well. But that's a small thing. Do you do you check the oil when you put gas in? Do you kick the tires and make sure there's enough air? Do you wash it frequently? Do you vacuum it out frequently? I don't always do all those things, but it doesn't excuse that God appreciates and watches for faithfulness in small little things. And you know what happens? It creates, I've been preaching about this too, it creates an attitude of excellence that follows you through the rest of your life. We can't see the future and we can't choose the future that we're going to experience, but we can choose our attitude and our actions which shapes the future that we experience. Life is what you make it. And the life you experience is going to be the one you build for yourself with the blessing of God. Well, let's make this, this deeper, not just talk about a car or something material. 
say, well, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talent. I'm not special. You have the most important thing that everybody in the world who accomplished great things was given. Time. You have the same amount of time, no more and no less per day, the same amount of time per week, 168 hours, that everybody has been given. I saw a quote where one of our presidents, I I think it was Teddy Roosevelt, he read a book every morning before breakfast. Spurgeon was said to have read five or six books a week while pastoring that metropolitan tabernacle and being crazy busy. We, We have a choice. I'm going to say it again. We have a choice whether to feel like we're slaves to busyness or not. It's our choice. Even if you work 60 hours a week and sleep uh, 8 hours a night, it's another 48, that's 108 hours, you still have 60 hours to do something. Not as busy as we think. You have gifts and talents and abilities. And again, maybe this is more for the young people and the old ones, but I want to say to the older ones, how sad that this culture that we live in, has created an environment where most older people who should be writing and teaching and encouraging and guiding spend their whole life in front of Netflix and Amazon Prime and cable television. How sad. How tragic. What resources we're losing. And to the younger people, what are we doing to cultivate ourselves? Listen, not only we all have the same life, and I'm not going to be much longer. We all have the same uh, time per day that people have been... We also have opportunity. All of us. We can choose to serve the Lord. You wake up in the morning, you can choose to wake up 10 minutes early and pray or not. And I don't do that as often as I should. My day's better when I do. How are you, as you're running your race, how are you taking advantage of the opportunities God has given? What are we doing with it? And now this is not a criticism. This is meaning to, to encourage. I don't know if y'all think about the end of the year like I do, but I've been think- I spent almost the entire day yesterday thinking about what I want out of life. Yeah. Because how will I know? Listen, what you want... I'm going to see if I can say this right because I just thought of it. The desires of your heart that are cultivated by knowing God are the foundation to figure out whether the emotional reactions you have to life are right. You can't know if these big feelings you have about things are right unless you know what you want and if what you want is aligned with what God wants. I've been thinking about that a lot in context of what do I expect in a wife? What do I want in a wife? I'm still single. And if I didn't know what I want, how in the world would I... You have all these big feelings. But they don't add up to the truth. How do you know if where you are is where you want to be? Say, well, I, I, I don't... I just want what God wants again. <laughs> God wants you to want his blessings.
Maybe you feel like you don't have big opportunities. Hey, here's another example of small things. We all have a bed. Make your bed. I'm telling you, that changed my life. And my mother trained me to make my bed. I should, I should just do a uh, disclaimer. And I made it growing up, and I still, I kind of sloppily pulled it up for all those years. I got up in the morning and ran to work in a hurry. And Do you know how much different, I'm serious, my life is different when every morning I tuck it, make it nice and neat. It takes an extra minute and a half or two minutes, and my day's different because I start out by doing one thing well. Make your bed. All of us have a home we live in. You might not own it. You might live with a family member. I want to give you some more scripture. Proverbs 24, verse 30 through 34. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and I learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. And they say, well, I, I don't ha- I, 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 I'm just surviving. I don't have anything I can do. Do you have somewhere where you live? Do you have some weeds you can pull? Pull the weeds. You may say, that sounds silly. It's not important. It doesn't accomplish anything. It transforms the way you function in the race God has given you to run. And the older ones, you pulled enough weeds in your life. Relax. you got other stuff you can do. But I'm talking to those of us, that's so small. But it's a matter of doing small things with excellence because it transforms our character so God can use us. If we're too lazy to pull weeds at the house we live at, what are we going to be like when God puts us somewhere that might be similar to Jeremiah's situation and he says, I'm going to preserve you, but they're going to hate you? Because all Christians experience times like that. Maybe not as severe, maybe not as long. I I got to read this again, this part of this verse. I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone with no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds. Solomon says that a foolish, senseless person doesn't pull their weeds. And this is going right to to my heart. Because none of us think something like that is important. But it is. It is. David, when he prayed, said, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God has given us this race to run in such a way that it won't always be easy. Uh, Races aren't easy. If they were, they wouldn't be races. And it's not always going to be just uh, exactly what you would want. But in the middle of your enemies, there's a table of the blessing of God. There's people surrounding, there's enemies surrounding, there's distraction, hurt, pain. And right there in the midst of all that, if we lay it all down before the Lord, His peace and His presence... And the peace that God gives is not the absence of difficulty, danger, or discomfort. It's not the absence of anything. Rather, God's peace is a filling, a completing, a perfecting. When we are filled with His peace, there simply isn't room for all those things that are usually there. All those things that occupy our thoughts and concerns. Life might be swirling chaos all around us, but inside we can be safe. 
I heard an analogy I want to leave you with as we think about all of this, think about Jacob wrestling in the presence of God with his messenger. When we're filled with the peace of God, there's no room for those other things. The analogy I heard is uh, it was a person standing there with a cup of nice, fresh brewed pour-over organic coffee from uh, Guatemala because that's the best. And he's just about to take a drink and somebody comes up, bumps his arm, coffee goes flying everywhere. And after he settles down his temper a little, you ask him, why did you spill coffee? And he says, somebody bumped into my arm. You say, no, that's why the cup moved. The reason you spilled coffee is because coffee was in your cup. If you had hot tea in your cup, you would have spilled hot tea. If you had milk in your cup, you would have spilled milk. And I want to leave you with this thought as you run your race, as we enter into 2018, by God's grace. Life is going to jostle us. Life's going to bump into us. It's going to shake the very core of our foundation from time to time. Whatever's in your cup is what's going to spill out. And a good example of that is when you almost wreck, do you say, thank you, Lord, or do you say a word you shouldn't say? That's what's in your cup. And I'm talking metaphorically about this tabernacle of flesh that God has given us to live this life in and run this race in. Whatever you put in will come out. That's why we need to transform ourselves with the renewing of our minds through God's scripture, through his love, through his presence, and through the fellowship with God's people. Because then when you're jostled, when you're tempted, when you're tried, what will spill over is thankfulness and love (laughs) instead of bitterness. What's in your cup? A lot of how you run your race will be determined by what you put in your cup all the time. Be careful about listening to the swirling thoughts in your head and the voices that aren't from God. Those voices of doubt, self-criticism, you're not good enough, you've wasted your life, nothing matters, it doesn't matter what you're doing, nobody loves you, nobody respects you, you're not important anymore. (laughs) I know a lot of older people and it seems like the consistent obstacle they have is they're not important anymore you know what if you feel that way you're just closer to the truth than us young people are none of us are important compared to God and yet we're so important that he loves us with unfailing love beautiful I want to say this if you don't know the Lord if you've listened to this message and you've never experienced God's peace if you're thinking about this new year and looking back on 2017 and saying I I feel like the whole thing was a waste I feel like I've wasted my life. If you feel that way, I want you to know you have purpose in Jesus. You can have fulfillment. You'll have to turn down the noise. You'll have to listen. And when God speaks to your heart, you go to Him. You can have peace. You can have fulfillment. And those of you who've been saved, sometimes your life still feels like swirling chaos. It's because when we feel that way, we haven't returned to the rock of our salvation. We haven't continued to strive and wrestle with Him. We haven't continued to desire His presence more than anything else. So if I could try to sum all this up and offer a blessing and a prayer upon all of us, it would be that God would give us an insatiable hunger for Him in this coming year, coupled with a strong and diligent desire to run this race He's given us.
the best we can.